Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And from Davos, we have Martin Arnold, our banking editor. Also, as our guest this week, we have Andre Kostin, the chief executive of VTB, who has been talking to Martin in Davos. This week, we'll be discussing Davos, what this week's World Economic Forum will bring, and particularly the warnings from Andre Kostin about increased conflict between Russia and the West. Secondly, we'll be taking a look at the reorganisation and other announcements from UBS alongside their full-year earnings and also a catch-up on the U.S. bank's fourth-quarter earnings. Firstly, though, to Davos, where Martin is on the line. You've been donning your mountain boots, Martin, trudging through the snow to bring us this dispatch. Davos is this odd thing that happens every year. We're hearing, though, that the mood among the elite this year is upbeat. We had the IMF putting out particularly optimistic outlook on the world economy. Is that borne out by the people you've seen in your first day or so there? I think everyone feels that the economic outlook globally is very positive and that the climate is as good as it's been for quite a while, perhaps even since before the financial crisis. However, I think underlying that, people are warning of the risks, not least the risks that the over-exuberance of markets, the fact that stock markets are reaching all-time highs while volatility is at record lows. Several bank bosses have said to me that this reminds them very much of the 2006 environment and that the crisis can't be far away. So you do have some naysayers, but most people are pointing out that Yep, um, things are as good as they can remember them, having ever been for the major economies of the world and big business. But you also hear a lot of people warning about the geopolitical risks. And this morning I sat down with the chief executive of one of Russia's biggest banks, Andre Kostin of VTB, who was warning about his fear that there could be more military clashes between Russia and NATO And that's one area that you do hear people talking about. The other, of course, is North Korea. So um, geopolitical concerns are definitely on the agenda. Well, let's hear now what Mr. Kostin did have to say. And of course, we should point out that we take these comments particularly seriously because Mr. Kostin, who heads one of Russia's biggest state-owned banks, is known to be particularly close to the Kremlin. Any economic sanctions against institutions, I think, will be... Uh, personally, I'm always saying, like declaring a war. And I see no reason then why the ambassador, the Russian ambassador, should stay in Washington any longer after that, or American ambassador, you know, swimming uh, in the cold water in Moscow. I don't see the reason. I think that is a worse than Cold War situation, and I think that that is very dangerous. I think Americans are playing with fire because relationship is going from bad to worse, and we're not responsible for this. We think it's definitely about domestic American policy. My institution or myself can do nothing to prevent this because I am not doing anything wrong. 
You know, the bank could be punished for money laundering, for illegal trade, for violating any rules or anything, you know, law, legislation, and American law, but we did nothing wrong. We are going to be punished only because America thinks that Russian foreign policy is the wrong one. But you clearly fear that there could be, as well as individual sanctions, there could be... I don't really know, because there's, frankly, there's no information at all. I've got no information <laughs> through my sources, contacts from my company in uh, New York. We've got a small company, bro- uh, broker dealer, or, or from anybody in the Russian government that there is a set of any economic sanctions. We only what leaking information. There was some comments of American former officials like Ambassador Fried and other. That's a, that's a very small drop of information. What, what has uh, been the impact of those sanctions for the, for the four, past four years? On your they got a, they had a limited impact, uh, yeah. but uh, I mean, for us, probably the worst is definitely the prevention of foreign investors to buy our new stocks. It means that we can't privatize our bank any further. We have now a 60% government stake. We could sell more, but this prevents now of uh, foreign investors to buy more stocks. And, it, it, of course, it uh, restricts us from... Uh, Further uh, privatization. For, for privatization and capital market, which we use quite intensely. I think uh, during my career, we raised about $14 billion dollars uh, of capital and the international markets. And now that's it. And also, of course, this two weeks limit of lending money to us also uh, restrict us in some even everyday operations. But they, up till now, had quite limited. Uh, though they did have a negative effect, you know, and that's very unfortunate. But we continue to grow. Frankly speaking, I'm more concerned about the global world peace rather than the activity of What worries Russia you the economy. most in the, the global environment? Is it, is it North oh, Korea? Is because it? we have the, the growing threat of military conflicts and, uh, you know, the militarization of Europe. Since the collapse of the communist system and the destruction of the Berlin Wall, I think uh, Europe lived quite peacefully in, in a good neighborhood. And uh, now I think what we see is that we are at the beginning of a new arms race, NATO was asking more weapons. Uh, it's spreading, you know, more weapons in Europe. Russia will retaliate definitely with the same. So who will benefit from this? Only generals, you know, and those who produce produce arms and, and, and those who is uh, in the army. I mean, they're asking for more and more budgets. And uh, America saying, um, Europeans, you should pay more for this. And who needs it? It's nonsense. And then a very dangerous. Do you think conflict. there's a real risk of Europe and Russia coming to blows? It is not. But just imagine, we have now so many incidents when NATO aircraft and Russian aircraft, you know, going neck to neck. Who knows? It could be just accident. Russian aircraft was shot by Turkish, for example. Maybe not on a bad intent, maybe accident, maybe I don't know, but it, it's going to happen. But there's so many arms and, and, and military equipment and, and people, I mean, close to each other, everything can happen. Maybe it will not lead to a nuclear war, but it's definitely kill further our relationship, you know. Who knows what's going to happen in Syria or even in Baltic State or even in, in Black Sea when we have now, uh, you know, American military ships in the Black Sea. So who knows? I mean, the more arms you have, the more reason to believe that by accident could be explosion.
a pretty terrifying prospect. And of course, it is. And of course, the North, North, North Korea is a, is a, is a North Korea major is a terrible concern. thing. And America said, well, Russia is not cooperating. And why Russia should cooperate with America? What America did that Russia should cooperate with America? Mm-hmm. Sanctions. They impose sanctions, and we in reply, more cooperation. Mm-hmm. It, sounds, it sounds quite reasonable, right? They shouldn't expect it. So, Martin, other than warnings of warfare, are there any other highlights that you're looking forward to for the rest of the week, either in terms of people coming to Davos or great events that are promised? Well, of course, we're going to hear from Donald Trump probably at some point. And I think it'd be really interesting, given that this is the hotbed of free trade and the global elite, which is generally very much in favor of globalization. And Donald Trump, in many ways, stands for the exact opposite of that. So a lot of people here are talking about what is Trump going to say and how is he going to pitch his America first message to this bunch of global businessmen and people who believe in free trade. So that's going to be really interesting. I think actually the speech that I'm looking forward to most is Emmanuel Macron, the French president, who has already hosted a lot of business leaders at the Palace of Versailles on their way to Davos to tell them all about his reforms in France and the special offers that he's making to foreign businesses that are looking to perhaps move some of their activities to France. Well, we can reflect on that and everything else you witness during the week in next week's podcast. Enjoy the week, Martin. Thanks very much, Patrick. Let's move on to UBS. And Laura, you were taking a look at what was a pretty busy announcement of fourth quarter earnings because actually the numbers themselves were pretty overshadowed by a lot of other things, not least a restructuring of their global wealth operation. Run us through what you think was most important. There was certainly a lot going on for the UBS earnings this week. First of all, I think it's the earliest any European bank has ever had earnings. They're over a week earlier than the next European bank. They certainly hit us with an awful lot yesterday. So I guess one of the big surprises was that they have finally merged their two wealth management divisions. They've always had Wealth Management America separate to their international private bank. And the idea, they said, was that the two business models in the US versus everywhere else in the world, that they were so different that you needed to have two divisions. Now they're saying, actually, you don't. We can actually merge the two. We can get lots of efficiencies from doing that. And that also casts in a different light. As some of you will recall, towards the end of last year, the longtime head of the International Private Bank, Jörg Zeltner, stepped down without any notice, really. So that also casts that in a bit of a different light, because now, instead of having a head of International and a head of the US Private Bank, you have two co-heads of this newly merged entity. Then beyond that, UBS finally told us the impact of the tax changes in the US and how that's going to affect them. They have the biggest impact of any European banks that we've heard from several others so far, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse. UBS has come in at $2.9 billion write-off at the end of last year. So that's obviously a big number for them. Then beyond that, we also had them talking about their dividend and their plans for the 2018 to 2020 period. There was good news on the dividend front. They have committed to a progressive dividend which people are glad to see. They've also committed to a two billion buyback over the next two years. They also announced targets for the next two years, fairly broad targets. And these were kind of variously described as being realistic targets by some analysts who have been kind and as being unambitious targets by some analysts who aren't. So if you look at things like the um, cost income ratio in their 
previous periods and plans, they've been targeting a cost income ratio between 60 to 70%. That implies that for every $100 of sales that they make, that they would have 60 to $70 of expenses. Now for the next two years, they're targeting cost income of 75%. So that gives you an idea of how they've basically reined in those targets. And then amongst all of that, we had the actual earnings. The actual earnings for the fourth quarter, I think it's fair to say that they weren't great, especially for the investment bank. By one of the profit measures, investment bank earnings were 84% lower than they were a year earlier. That was the least flattering of them. Certainly, there was no metric that you could look at for the investment bank that looked good. So it was a fairly challenging Q4 as well. As with a lot of banks, I suppose. But is it fair to say that UBS still is one of the beacons of hope for European banking? There's certainly a pretty low bar for them to compare themselves against the others. But what's your overall view? Yeah, I think if you look back to the bigger picture, UBS is still one of the only continental European banks which trades above book value. And despite the flurry of news, is still basically trading at what it was before all this news. So it's still trading at around 1.3 times book value, which is closer to the US banks and the Nordic banks and some of the other continental Europeans like Credit Suisse Deutsche. And a lot of the problems UBS has are essentially good problems to have. I mean, it's looking at things like how can it sustain the rate of growth in the private bank? How can it make the investment bank work? But I mean, even in the context of the investment bank, yes, it was hit. And yes, if you look at its revenue from fixed income trading, that would have been down like 38% year on year. However, the investment bank now makes up a much smaller part of the UBS group. So I think certainly when you look at the overall continental European picture, UBS is still in very good health, relatively speaking. Very good. Well, you mentioned in passing there the US banks and how UBS is maybe closer to them than its European peers. Well, that's the focus of our third item today. Looking back really at those fourth quarter earnings from the US banks, we've had them all now. What is your overall impression? A lot of, as you said, UBS's trading activities were hit and that certainly was a story right across Wall Street. But it was a mixed picture. You know, a lot of the banks actually outperforming some of the expectations despite those plunges in fixed income trading. Yeah, I think we tend to focus a lot on fixed income trading. It's become a fixation of both ourselves in the media and also of analysts, but it's only one part of the bank. So while the fixed income trading numbers were pretty dramatic this year, I mean, if you look at like um, Goldman Sachs in particular, their fixed income trading revenue was down like 50%, Morgan Stanley down 45% and down 28% across the piece. So those are obviously big, big numbers. However, it's only one part of the bank. If you look at even another part of the investment bank, the revenues from equity capital markets, which is helping companies to raise equity, they were up across the piece at 49%. And like Goldman Sachs more than doubled its revenues there. So there are lots of other pieces of banking and some of them are doing better. Also on the credit side, which is basically whether you make losses on your core lending business, banks were also doing better there. So I think the US earnings were pretty mixed. But the one thing about the fourth quarter earnings was it wasn't really about the earnings at all. All anyone really cared about was what these tax reforms mean. There was a lot of noise around the big numbers. So we had like Citibank in particular, they had a tax write-off of more than 20 billion, which is obviously a big, big number. But it doesn't really mean a whole lot because it doesn't affect the capital. It doesn't affect the cash. And it's just kind of there on the sidelines. But people were concerned about what it's going to mean for the tax rate going forward. And also how the banks see the overall economic environment changing as a consequence of these tax changes, which should at one level put some more money into the economy. We've seen a number of US companies do things like I think Apple is giving all its staff like one off cash bonuses as a consequence of the tax cut. Others have been increasing wages for staff. And that should in turn lead to increased consumption, 
increased inflation and all of those good things which do ultimately help banks. And one relevant point to mention here is that on Tuesday morning we had an announcement from JP Morgan about just this kind of investment. Yeah, they're talking about how they're going to open new bank branches, which was the first time in recent history I can recall a bank with a plan to expand its bank branch network. But yeah, JP Morgan are talking about a variety of things. So they're going to increase their wages by 10% on average, and this will mainly affect people who are on an hourly wage. They're also going to expand the branch network into new US markets, and they reckon that's going to increase lending to small business and also increase their philanthropic investments. And they're going to also increase their lending to SMEs generally by $4 billion, and they're going to accelerate lending for affordable housing. So they're doing a lot of things, which I guess should, on the one hand, stimulate the US economy and will also, I guess, they hope, please the US president, who I think will see these moves as being a vindication of the kind of economic future he has been trying to outline, which is where you cut taxes to US businesses and then good things happen for the ordinary man on Main Street. The quid pro quo is coming through. Very good. Well, thanks for that, Laura. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura here in the studio, Martin and his guest, Andre Costin in Davos, and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.